Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to Hey Human Podcast. This is episode number 31 with Brian Widener. He is a former neo-Nazi skinhead. And some of you may uh, recognize his name uh, from the documentary that he made called Erasing Hate. It's on Netflix, so if you have not heard of it or you haven't seen it, uh, do check it out. It's an extraordinary documentary. So Brian's episode, this one, follows uh, last week's, which was with Richard Nichols, who is a Grand Dragon in the KKK, who is very much still in the KKK, and that's his way of life and how he thinks and feels and all that stuff. And I wanted to um, get Brian on the show because I thought it was uh, it was a good way to show that, you know what, no matter what, no matter where we are, look, I think we're all human beings just trying to figure this out planet out the best way we know how and for some that means isolation and for others it means acceptance and for others it means hate for others you know it means solidarity it means so many different things to people but we all start from the same place then we grow up and we become who we are based on you know our parents or surroundings you know in Brian's case in the, the kids who noticed that he was a disgruntled youth or a troubled teen and took him under his their wing, took him under their wing and indoctrinated him. Um, Brian's a good example of that just because somebody grows up in, in that philosophy, you know, grows up feeling these things, they don't have to stay that way. You know, no matter who we are, we all have a capacity and room for growth and change. And, you know... Brian took a look at himself one day and said, this isn't who I am, and and got out. And he got out of a group that is notorious for not really being cool with people getting out. Um, he had death threats, and he was harassed, and his kids were harassed. and so. Um, but he stuck to his guns, and so to speak, he's not allowed to have guns, but <laughs> you get what I'm saying. And uh, now he's, his mission is to make the world a better place, to spread love and, and tolerance and understanding and, in his own words, atoning for his sins. Um, so it's a very powerful conversation. And again, you know, the whole reason that I do this podcast is to get a glimpse at other people and humanity and, and see myself and see what I could have been capable of had I been raised up in a different way or to know that no matter how crazy or upsetting things are out in the world that it gives me hope that I can cling to that a change is possible in Brian's case it certainly not only was possible but it you know it was probable it happened maybe it was improbable I don't know anyway it's a it's a cool conversation um I hope you dig it and as usual, um, I put stuff up on heyhumanpodcast.com. There's links uh, up there that have to do with this episode. And uh, I'm on iTunes at Hey Human. If you have a Google phone, you can download the Podbean app. And I'm on Hey Human on there. And Instagram, Hey Human Podcast. Facebook, Hey Human Podcast. All the stuff. If you go to iTunes... Uh, please rate, review, 
um, spread the word, do all the things, help get the word out on Pay Human. I'd appreciate it. And yeah, so here we go. Hi, Brian. How are you? I am doing well, Susan. How are you? I'm doing well. Brian Widener, welcome to Hey Human Podcast. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yours um, is a really interesting story, uh, which we will dive into. Um, you, where did you grow up as a kid? Where, where did you start out your journey? I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Okay. Out in uh, uh, pretty, a pretty slummy part of town, actually. Um, I became a skinhead back when I was 14. Uh I actually was kind of a street kid. I was running away a lot, living on the streets and whatnot. And uh, essentially, I fell in with the wrong crowd. I mean, I met a bunch of guys who they gave me a place to stay. They helped me get a job. Um, At the time, there was a few of them that were over 21, so they were buying beer for us, you know, things of that nature. And I thought that they were really nice, and which they were. And uh, they just kind of took me under their wing. And, you know, being a homeless teenager, that was kind of a big thing. Yeah. Why were you During homeless? That, uh, excuse me? Why Sorry? were you homeless? What? Um, I ran away a lot for a while. From I started running away at the age of like 12. Mm-hmm. And uh, by the time I was 14, they were pretty well over it. My, you know, my family unit was pretty well over it at that point. So they're like, hey, if you want to be gone, then be gone. Yeah, basically yeah. at that point. But yeah, it was, it was as, as most of us grow up in dysfunctional families, that's not so unheard of. But yours was pretty hardcore. There was actually looking back, my it really wasn't. I mean, at the time, of course, I was miserable. I was hormonal, blah yeah, blah blah. Sure. But as I've gotten older, I kind of realized that it really wasn't that bad. Okay. <laughs> you know, um, the reason I, why I, I ask by... is, is to lead you into it, where you say, "Oh, there were some skinheads," and I was like, "Oh, I think I'll be a skinhead." I mean, generally, you kind of the the atmosphere, and that's a pretty intense way to live one's life. I would. I was wondering if maybe the atmosphere of your younger childhood had uh, any sort of vocabulary, for lack of a better word, that was anti a certain type of people or, you know. Actually, no. Um, I was raised very uh, incredibly liberal. Like, really? it was shoved down my throat. Um, I was raised by my grandmother, and she was very liberal. She was, she just was. And uh, it was it was kind of force-fed down my throat. When I ended up, uh, when I was 12, I ended up moving in with my father, my biological father, and his, he was, eh, we didn't know each other real well, and he kind of kept it that way. <laughs> he yeah. worked all the time, and I had better things to do, so we didn't really develop a father-son relationship, I guess. Mm-hmm. The high school I went to was like 80% Mexican, so just by that right there, I was a minority by being white, and uh, I, I was the subject of racism. I mean, because of the color of my skin, I was beaten up pretty much every day. I was harassed all the time. It was, it it just sucked. And I learned how to hate is what happened. I, and when I started hanging out with these other skinheads, they let, they, they convinced me that, you know, all these problems that were initially mine, all these bad decisions that I made, I could, you know, direct towards somebody else. And at 14, I wasn't mature enough to really recognize that I, you know, should have just accepted responsibility for my actions. Well, I mean, 14 or five or, you know, 50, I think age doesn't really, a lot of people do that as adults too, don't they? So. Oh, they do. They do. 
<clears throat> they do. I mean, at the time, I maturity-wise, I there was no way I could yeah. accept what I was doing to myself, basically. It was much easier to scapegoat everybody else when, in all actuality, I was just making bad decisions. Right. Did you think to yourself, hey, I want to be a skinhead, or did you just think, these guys are cool, and they buy me beer, and they're nice to me, and my life is pretty sucky, so, I mean, was it, do you know what I mean? Did you think, oh, that philosophy is interesting, or was it just sort of, you're, you're 12, you're 14, you're just going to go with the go? Well, at, at the time, I was just going with the go. You know, I shaved my head one night at a party, drunker in hell, and, you know, everybody cheered, blah, blah, blah. And they started actually kind of preaching to me about the whole, you know, white supremacy philosophies and whatnot. And it, it kind of made sense to me. I mean, again, I was young, so it didn't, it really didn't click, but it was something that I started getting interested in. So, I mean, this was prior to the internet, so I used to have to go to libraries and whatnot to, uh, to study up on the Third Reich, which I did, and that was when I thought, well, hey, this is this is for me, you know, this is this is something I should be doing, and that's kind of that's kind of how it birthed. It wasn't, you know, I just woke up one day and like, okay, say Kyle, you know, it just it didn't work like that. It 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 came through self education, um, again, hanging out with these people, and just. Again, going with what you said, kind of going with the flow at that young age. Yeah. I mean, that's how you indoctrinate people, isn't it? You get them young and... That's it, that's actually uh, what most skinhead gangs have been doing since the 80s, is actually bringing in younger people like that who are disenfranchised or destitute, living on the streets, this and that, and they just take them under their wing, give them a place to stay, buy them beer, help them get jobs... And kind of give them a familial sense that they don't have anywhere else. Right. So at that point, they're starting to kind of feel obligated and loyal to you. And then it's not hard indoctrinating a political philosophy at that point. Absolutely not. I mean, that's that's the thing I, I try to explain to people all the time is when someone feels unloved or unwelcomed or unhuman, inhuman, you know, all it takes is someone, anyone to show kindness or humanity no, no matter what you know even if on one side they're saying the rest of humanity is this way but we're okay that's all human beings are trying to do is find their their you know cluster their pod their their people absolutely they're just trying to find something bigger than themselves something that they can latch on to that they can feel loved with yeah and you know i I fall into very much a stereotype. I was a street kid that fell in with the wrong people. It could have happened with any other gang. I just happened to. Yeah, you fall could have in fallen with in with the Hare Krishnas and been selling exactly. flowers at the airport. <laughs> I, I met a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. I mean, that happens. So you're you're 14 and now you're a skinhead. So, uh -huh. so does that mean that's it for the your family? Does your family say? you're a skinhead or they're like wow now you're definitely never coming home or well my family they tried and i'll give it to them at the time i didn't recognize it um they they did try to do some interventions and things um for instance uh when i turned 16 um my grandmother moved down to las cruces which is about three hours south of albuquerque and um my family got kind of got together did an intervention shanghaied me and kind of shipped me down there <laughs> And then they enrolled me in school and whatnot. And, of course, I was pissed off about it because all my friends were 
200 miles north of me and you know I'm, I'm down here having to follow rules again and that wasn't going to happen so I went out of my way to get expelled from that high school yeah <laughs> I, I worked really hard at it actually yeah <laughs> and he, so you got is this where you because I had read that you you founded your own group the was it Vinlander Social Club is this is that What's way that? fast forward or is that when you're still a kid Oh, no, that was in my late 20s. Oh, okay, or, so I don't want to jump the gun. So take me through your teen years and kind of how you escalated. Well, my teen years, um, like I said, I got expelled from that school, and my family was pretty well done with me at that point. They knew they couldn't control me. Yeah. So they bought me a bus ticket back to Albuquerque, and I came back up here and started running the streets. Um, you know, got my own place, started working, blah, blah, blah. Uh Really wasn't doing a whole lot because there really wasn't a big skinhead or Nazi skinhead scene up here at the time. I mean, there was a few people, but they were real scattered. We ended up all kind of getting together when I was 17 and forming our own group called the Soldiers of the New Reich. Okay. And uh, that's that was the first group I was in. And we just basically, at that time, we just passed out a lot of flyers, um, did some things for the KKK. And really, that was about it. I mean, we weren't... We didn't do anything too horrible, I guess. Um, I mean, we got in street fights and things like that, but it's Spray not like we were doing painted swastikas around the town kind of thing. Right, yeah. things like that. And that, I mean, that, that, was, that was pretty much it. So it was, wasn't a huge ordeal. It was just something we were all a part of, basically. Um, we tried to branch out into a bigger group in the country called the Hammerskins. And that's one of the longest running and largest skinhead organizations in the country. They're, they're huge. They're all over the country. We tried to branch out to them, but we weren't, I guess, uh, badass enough. Would be oh, the, are they more probably. violent? Are they a more violent <laughs> branch? Yeah. It's funny because right. I think a lot of people think, uh, you know, from their armchairs, um, that, okay, skinheads, they're over there. You know, those people are crazy and so hateful and they're running around spray painting swastikas and getting into bar fights and all that. And to hear you say it, I mean, they're, they could just be, you know, right down the street. There they are kind of thing. Is it that prevalent or? That's actually very prevalent. Um, I mean, most skinheads, especially this day and age where it's fashionable to have a bald head and be completely covered in tattoos, you know, it's, it's like the modern media has made it fashionable to actually look like a skinhead for just a normal person. So anybody could be a skinhead and you just wouldn't know it because that's the fashion statement now. Yeah. Um, most skinheads, whether they're racist or non-racist, I mean, are very blue collar. They're, they're always working. Um, yeah, they party on the weekends and whatnot and get in bar fights, but it's usually reserved for when they're not working. So it's, yeah, they're out there, but again, you're not going to, you're not going to know unless there's a big rally or, they're advertising it basically. Well, you said so. There's they're either racist or not racist. Is there such thing as a non-racist skinhead? Or oh yeah, the roots of being a skinhead are actually come from non uh, non-racist uh, um, background. It it started in the late '60s, early '70s out in the UK, out in London, and uh, basically it was all these dock worker, you know, all these kids that come from like blue collar dock working families and whatnot. Um, they would wear the suspenders and work boots to signify the whole blue collar thing. Um, they listened to reggae because there was some punk rock back then. Um, there was a lot of black skinheads. I mean, it wasn't, 
when as skinhead started it wasn't this racial thing it was more of a downtrodden kind of um huh you know, blue collar downtrodden yeah. kind of uni- unity type thing how did racial skinheads really didn't come into play until the 70s out in uh out in england really how did it get appropriated um you know, you, you got the people who were Nazi sympathizers who saw these soccer hooligans and, and these, you know, little little street kids and whatnot and started, tell, you know, basically brainwashing them, telling them about the wonderful white power things and how, you know, white people are becoming extinct and blah, 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 and taking these disenfranchised youths and giving them a direction for their hatred, which happens to be political. Right. So, it's, I mean, the, the brainwashing and the indoctrination has been the same for 30-plus years at sure. this point. So, Yeah, it's it's easy to manipulate a self-loathing, I think, you know, huh? and turn it outward. It, it's incredibly easy. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. You just you find these disenfranchised people, and because they hate themselves, it, it's real easy to have that hatred turn, be turned around into something else to fulfill your own political gains. I yeah. mean. Adolf Hitler did that with with the brown shirts to even start the Third Reich. You know, he had all these ex-soldiers who really had nothing, and he gave them a cause. He gave them something bigger than themselves, and they jumped on board. So here you, okay, you're a teenager, and the big the big guns don't want you, doesn't want your group. So did you guys decide? All right, then we're gonna step up our game, or did you just decide to keep going on your own? That's exactly. No, that's exactly what happened. We decided to uh, to yeah step up our game basically. Um, some really bad things happened, and uh, like. the police obviously. Um, well, I can't say for sure whether I was there or not, but um, a child molester got beaten into a vegetative vegetative state. Oh wow. Um, I mean, at the time, we actually had some police officer friends who let us know on you know drug dealers and um, like this child molester. He uh, he got off through a technicality, not not because of lack of prosecution, but because somebody messed up something somewhere, like a signature, just something really, really little and really stupid. Yeah. And he got off Scott. Yeah. And so the crew I was in handled it. And um, at that point, it hit the news. Police presence got really bad. It got really, you know, the, the heat came on. I mean, they, they started rolling us up every chance they got. They showed up. I was, uh, I was a framer at the time. I was building houses and they actually showed up on, uh, <laughs> at my frame and picked me up and took me downtown and asked me a bunch of questions about it. Really? Listen that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I got fired. My, my boss was none too happy about it, but yeah. it is what it is. So at that point we all kind of scattered and left the state. I took off. Actually, I took I did a tour of the West coast for a little bit, went up to through California and Seattle. Actually, uh, Ended up on a crab boat out there. It's 98. Um, got off the crab boat and found out a lot of my old mates were actually out in Indiana. So I came home to Albuquerque to turn 21, and then I took a Greyhound out to Indiana. And that's – I met a bunch of uh, guys from the northern Hammerskins out there and started hanging around with some of my old mates again. And I was actually being considered as a prospect for the Hammerskins at the time, but – I had this problem where I kept going in and out of jail. Um, so I, I, apparently they, they overlooked me at that point. I wasn't, I wouldn't have been good for the group. They didn't, so want, once I they go, didn't want the heat. 
they, they didn't want the heat. Um, I mean, how, how good could you possibly be for a group if, you know, you're constantly being in and out of jail? Why were you, you know, being you're arrested just, for just petty crime stuff? Petty crime, mostly yeah. fights. I mean, I, yeah. I had a temper at the time. I was I was a very angry young man, so. So when you're on the crabbing, I might go back and forth a little bit just because, you know, conversation Fine. is like that. But um, when you were on the crabbing boat, I assume there, did you, what I, did you carry your belief system that you had now developed with you once you left the group that you were used to and now suddenly you're around regular quote-unquote society, you know, and you're getting on this crab boat and there's probably African-Americans and Asian people, you know, and all these different people and Jewish guys or whatever. You're all having to work together as a team on a crab boat, which, by the way, is very dangerous. You really have to work together as a team. Yep. Do you then set aside this new ideology that you have fostered or... Well, I, at the time, it. I was 20 years old, so I'd already been a skinhead about six years. I'd already had the the philosophy and um, ideals for you know about six years, so I knew how at that time to put it aside at work. I mean, I don't have to sit there and see Guile while I'm trying to earn a paycheck. You know, it's unrealistic yeah. unless you want to lose your job. Yeah. Um, on a crab boat, of course, yeah, you have to be on top of your game. You are relying on the guy next to you, regardless of what color he is. I mean, because you all want to get off the boat alive. Right. So, but see, that's my know, question. It's... So, if you're like, if you have this, you like you were saying, like you have this belief system, and then you get into a situation where you have to rely on humanity, for lack of a better word, to with you have to rely on your brother to be your brother. Does that right. not start to chip away at your belief system, or? Uh, at the time. I don't think it did. Um, I mean, we got to figure this was 19 years ago. Um, I don't think it did because when I got off the boat, I was still straight arming and yeah. being a hothead. Um, I mean, while while I was there, I mean, yeah, they were my friends. We we drank together, we ate together, we slept in the same room. You know, it, very enclosed area. You know, it's you're in the middle of the ocean. You can't. It's not like there's an escape. Right. So, I mean, the beliefs. It's just like just like any other political beliefs. I mean. It, if you're on the middle of the ocean, a Republican and a Democrat aren't going to be at each other's throats. They're they're going to be doing the job at hand and you know making sure each everybody gets off the boat alive. Right. Um. It it was the same thing. Yeah. And I just looked at it as a political standpoint more than anything. Okay. All right. It's interesting. Okay. So now you're in Indiana. I yeah, I was bouncing in and out of jail. Um. <laughs> I finally got all that squared away, and I was. About 23 when I finally got all my legal problems taken care of. And then I probated for the Hammerskins. Um, at the time, the there's different factions of Hammerskins throughout this country. Um, up in Indiana, it was the Northern Hammerskins. Well, something happened where somebody got beat up and like some kind of political crap went on. And the Northern Hammerskins actually split off from the rest of the Hammerskins and formed their own group called the Outlaw Hammerskins. And they signed a declaration of war, um, and this and that, basically saying, you step in our state, we're going to kill you. Well, I ended up, that was a group I ended up joining was the Outlaw Hammerskins, because all these guys were my friends. So, of course, I had some loyalty to them. I didn't know anyone else in the crew. Sure. So, I, I stuck with them. And, yeah, we, we, we came probably one of the most notorious skinhead gangs in the country, and there was 15 of us at our max. I mean, there wasn't a lot of us. But we got really well known for being incredibly violent. Um, we 
we we use guns, um, things of that nature, stab people. The I mean, for instance, the Hell's Angels used to actually ask us to do security at their functions. Whoa! So it, that tells you something. That we were tells me something. incredibly notorious. <clears throat> um, yeah, where even other renegades were kind of scared of us. So. Did you guys we, we, not? I'm not asking you specifically because you wouldn't be able to answer anyway unless you had to go to jail for something like that already, and it's done deal. But did you guys? Did anyone kill anyone? There was there was some murders. Yes, there were. Yeah, that group was pretty short lived. Me and a bunch of the other guys who were also outlaw hammer skins and just some other skinheads we knew throughout the state. That's when we started a group called the Hoosier State Skinheads, and. Um, at the same time, we actually also started the um, Ohio State Skinheads, uh, Canyon State Skinheads, and Golden State Skinheads. And, uh, All we, at yeah, once? We, yeah, yeah, we, we branched out. We, how, how, why we did the different states like that was actually to avoid RICO charges in case the government decided to come down on us. What's a RICO we were charge? All under, uh, we were all under federal investigation. Um, RICO is used to take down um, like mafias things of that nature. Oh, I know what that is. That's the one where if three or more people are doing a crime, it's considered to be organized crime. Absolutely. Ah, I remember that from one of my other podcasts. (laughs) My my friend Adam would be very proud of me. Okay, anyway, go on. (laughs) You get a gold star. (laughs) So we started all these different clubs in different states, and everybody had their, their own state name, but we were all the same club. And it was on actually to avoid RICO in case somebody did something in one state, the government couldn't prove it to all be able to pull everybody. Even though we all were in the same, it was the same club. We just had yeah. it set up to where if you, you'd really have to be in to know this, basically. Anybody, if you looked on it from the outside, it was just different gangs. But right. we were all same gang. And we were try, what we were trying to do, the ultimate goal was actually unify all the North American white power skinheads under one banner. We were trying to pull pull them all together. Um, it didn't work out, obviously, because it, it just yeah, it, that can't work. You get two, you get so many alpha males in one situation, bad things happen. Um, after a while, about two years of us all being in these different state skinhead crews, we just said screw it and decided to change the name to the Vinlander Social Club, and just bannered everybody up in these different states, all in the same club at that point. Because we were trying to do everything that we were doing illegal was really hush hush. Nobody knew about it except club members, and we were selling T-shirts and things of that nature to and paying taxes on it. So we we're trying to actually incorporate and become a become a business, basically. Yeah. Um. By that time, I'd already been a skinhead. Oh, fourteen years, I think, maybe fifteen, and I was. Uh, I was already done with the whole political aspect of everything. I, I, 10 years into it, I pretty well realized that white people are not superior. Um, everybody's just kind of trying to live their lives. And in the skinhead movement, there's a lot of hypocrisy, a ton of it. Like, um, for instance, they, they like to preach something called the 14 words, which is we must secure the existence of our race and a future for white children, which on paper looks great. Yeah. You want, you want, you want to expand white kids. You want to, uh, strengthen your culture cool the problem is is half these people don't um, they, they don't hold women to high esteem they, you know they beat their women all the time they have bastards in multiple states that they don't pay a dime of child support on or even have any 
anything to do with their lives. They're all genuinely degenerates. So the hypocrisy is constantly there, and it does weigh on you after a while. I mean, even with your even with your own family, you can't you can't sit. You can only make excuses for even your own family so many times before it's like, okay, yeah, enough. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and that's the way the skinhead thing is. I mean, you're constantly making excuses for these people because they just feel like being assholes. I mean, that's really it. They just feel like being assholes. So you have to constantly make excuses for them. Do you feel like like that that your epiphany happens to a lot of people within the, the group, the skinhead groups? I know you can't really speak for them, but do you think that that's maybe a common thread and that people just stay in it for sheer inertia or pride? Not to play on words with the pride, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, um, honestly, I think so. I mean, even when I was, even before I got out, I mean, I would talk to some of the other guys and about how it's really not about any anything cultural. It's not about anything. It's it's not about you know raising your kids right and and you know being proud of your culture. It's about being a drunken hooligan. And a lot of the older skinheads do feel that way. I mean, but a lot of them don't get out because, well, after you. I, mean, I can speak for myself, obviously, but um, I gave it. Up, I gave up the political aspect of it ten years in, but I didn't get out of it. The reason being was because these were my family; these were my friends. This was the only way I knew how to be. Sure. And there are. I know there are a lot of old skinheads out there that are just like that. They just don't know any other way to be, so they kind of have to continue on with this with this cycle of abuse and. I mean, at the time, I was I, I was drinking my I was drinking about a thirty pack of beer a day and sometimes sometimes a thirty pack and a fifth. Um, I was literally trying to drink myself to death. Yeah. Um, there really isn't a retirement program with these things. You don't get a gold watch after twenty years and an attaboy. Um, you got prisoner death, and that's pretty well it. There's it's blood in, blood out. Um, so I was I was lost. I was destitute. I was in a really dark place. And that's when I met my ex-wife, and she kind of gave me a reason to live. I mean, uh, we got married, I got her pregnant, and right before my son was born, I I mailed in my patch and I gave up everything. I was done. I didn't. Right before he was born, I I mean, the real moments of clarity started really hitting at that point. Um, I didn't want to see my kid go down any any paths that I went down. Um, I mean, I grew up without a dad. I didn't want him to grow up without one. You know, it's it, things like that where I was like, I, I need to be there for him. Not, you know, it's not about me anymore. It's it's about this little man. And this, I couldn't I couldn't do it. At this point, well, I have two questions. One, when you met your ex-wife, um, was she also sort of in this movement as well? Is that how you met? And my secondary question is, um, even before you guys were going to have a baby, you were saying that you were starting to go, wait a minute, this isn't really... I don't believe this stuff anymore. Did you mean you don't believe in the violent part or you were starting to think there's nothing wrong with African-Americans or Jewish people or, you know, where was that line of thought going for you? The line of thought was going, um, I didn't think there was anything wrong with Jewish people or, or black people or Chinese people or, or, you know, Indian people. I didn't, everybody's just trying to get by. Everybody's just trying to make a paycheck and provide for their families. Everybody's just trying to get through to the next day. And that's kind of that's where my philosophies came from. I mean, just I worked in the tattoo industry for 
right around 14 years. So I met a lot of people from different cultures, different backgrounds. I met a lot of gay people and everybody knew my politics, but I didn't advertise it. I didn't, you know, I didn't sit there and, and run it down their throats. They just knew who I was and, and what I was about. Um, but they did respect, they showed me enough respect. So of course I showed them respect. And that's when the realizations came that I'm not better than anybody else. In right. fact, with my track record, I'm kind of worse <laughs> than most people. Um, the violent aspect, it, that just wears you out. Um, I mean, I got, I got problems. I'm 39 years old and I got problems with my body. The most 60 year olds have, you know, I got, I got bouts of PTSD and I've never seen a day of combat. You know, I, it, it, it does take its toll and, uh, you just, you, you can't, I mean, you, the old, the old, the old adage, uh, live by the sword, die by the sword. It's, it's very appropriate. It's very real. <laughs> Was and your was your ex wife part of the movement? Is that how you came to know her? She was. We met at an actual. We actually met at a clan rally in two thousand and five. Um, she was. Um, she had only been in it for about five years, but she was already seeing the crap for what it was. And did she get um, indoctrinated the same way you did? She came from a background that was crappy, and well, she came from she came from a racist. Her dad was racist back in the seventies and eighties. So she did, she did have a racist upbringing where as I did not, um, she was raised in Detroit, which is very black area. So sure. she again, learned how to hate. Yeah. And, um, that was kind of how she, she got into it. Um, she actually wasn't officially into the whole skinhead thing until she actually met a skinhead and, and, uh, her first husband or something and they got married and then she started meeting other skinheads and really dove in head first. But she was only in it about five years, and really, again, she started seeing the crap for what it was—just crap. Um, she didn't have this; she didn't have as deep roots as I did, so it was easier for her to sever the ties and, and get out of it. Where with me, it was—you know—I'd spent most of my adolescent and all my adult life up until that point as a skinhead. I mean, that was who I was. That was what I was. Yeah. So it was identity. Yeah. Is there a big difference between skinhead and KKK? Because I think a lot of people just lump them all together. Um. They do lump them all together. Um, there is a huge, uh, there, there is a big separation. Um, first off, I mean, the Klan likes to preach how they're very, uh, very Christian when everything they do is anti. Um, um, I've, I've never read in the Bible, thou shall hate black people. I don't know. I might be reading the wrong Bible. It's incredibly different. Um, skinheads and Klan generally don't get along real well. Most skinheads are pay or believe religiously more pagan things, um, you know, druidic or even Norse um, oh, things of that nature. The Germanic stuff yes. that makes yes. sense. Okay, sure. European, um, <clears throat> whereas the clan looks at all that as Satanism, heathenism, you yeah, know. So that makes sense. There's, there's definitely a division there. So if and you're, if you're still in it, and you but you but you've removed yourself, your conscious. You're like a conscious objector in a war, you know, you like, I don't want to fight anymore. I don't want to do this. How do you, how do you function within a group that it's a whole, you know, operations management system is based on doing these awful things? Uh, massive amounts of alcohol. So you're literally, you're just like, I'm going to numb this shit out and then go for it. Pretty much. That's yeah. exactly what I did. I just, mm -hmm. I drank yeah. every day, all day long. Yeah. And that was the only way I could, uh, 
basically look at myself in the mirror at the time. I was, I was disgusted with how my life turned out. And at that time I matured enough to realize, well, wait, this is all my fault. (laughs) This isn't, this isn't black people's fault. This isn't the Jewish conspiracy. It is my fault. And that caused me to drink more because, you know, I I was really self-loathing at the time. So it was like you say, it's, it's like being a conscientious objector during a war. It's, Regardless, you can object all you want, but you're still going to have to fire your gun. You know, you're still going to have to do what you have to do to survive. And that's exactly what I did. I mean, all my quote unquote brothers knew I didn't get, knew I didn't care about the politics. They knew I didn't give a damn at that point anymore. They did. But yeah. they, they, they could rely on me. Yeah. So. So how do you get out from something like that? What do you what do you do? Well, I mailed in my patch right before my boy was born. Um, just a couple days before he was born, I called the president of the club and I told him, listen, I'm, I can't do this anymore. I'm done. I'm over. I'm, it's over. I can't, I got to raise my kid. I need to provide for my family. I can't do this anymore. And he said, okay, no problem, man. We're going to go ahead and retire you. And then two days later, the death, the death threats began right after my kid was born. They, they decided my retirement meant that they were just going to sit there and mentally destroy me. Yeah, do you and, think that uh, they really wanted to kill you, or do you think they wanted to just harass you into oblivion? Oh no, they wanted to kill me. They did. Um, they still you. do. Yeah, they still do. They um, st- do you do at this point? You had now. I'm looking at you now, completely clean face. You have some massively awesome sideburn chops, but no tattoos. Okay. And there was a time when you were your face was covered in tattoos. Mm-hmm. So at this point in your life, you are back then. Were you tattooed? To I was. I was still completely covered. My my face was sleeved, my neck. They were, they came down to my fingertips. Um, so I was trapped from getting any kind of decent job because I looked like a circus freak. Obviously, nobody wants to give you a, a good paying job when you look like that. Yeah. Um, I was I didn't do that. I wasn't in the tattoo industry anymore, so that was gone. Um, so I was basically I was trapped in my own skin. Was what it was. I had to settle for. I was, we were living in northern Michigan at the time in a town called Ironwood, which is literally right by Lake Superior. Mm-hmm. It was uh, what I like to call the ass crack of Canada. <laughs> um, it was, you know, you got six foot snow drifts, uh, you had nine months of winter, the other three months it hailed. You know, it was, it was cold. Yeah. So the job I could really get was uh, I had two jobs there. I was telemarketing and I was also shoveling snow at a car lot. Because um, they didn't care how you to do that. Yeah, yeah. sure. So... It was 50 below, and uh, you know the, the police would say, "Hey, nobody be outside," and I would be at work along with the cops. <laughs> yeah. So it was a really miserable time. I mean, we we're barely scraping by because both jobs didn't pay crap. I mean, I was making minimum wage, which at the time I think was like 550. Yeah. So she, my uh, ex-wife, had four kids plus we had a newborn, so I wasn't making near enough for us to survive. Basically, I mean, we were barely scraping by. Yeah. And I started looking into um, buying dermal acid on eBay to actually burn all the crap off my skin. And I mean, obviously, some of the risks were, you know, massive amounts of chemical burn scarring. Blindness. But, <laughs> yeah, it was it, it would have been a very bad idea, basically. Bad idea. Um, during that while I was doing these investigations, my ex-wife actually reached out to Daryl Lamont Jenkins of the One People's Project. And um, he's uh, an anti-racist organizer. Um, he was 
public enemy number one to me for years. I mean, we, we knew who each other were, but only because we were enemies. And, uh, she reached out to him and kind of okey doked me to get on the phone with him one night. Now, before, hold on, before you go on with this story, were you on like an FBI's most wanted and stuff? Were you one of those kind of guys? Well, I wasn't on the most wanted list, but we I was under investigation by the Joint Terrorist Task Force. Okay, so and you're I very well known. I was actually put on the uh, domestic terrorist watch list back then, which I'm still on. Apparently, can you, you can't get off of that. Are you allowed I'm, to fly now? I can fly in, in in country, but I don't. I can't get a passport. I can't own guns. Can't vote. Things of that nature. Oh wow! Okay. I'm basically a felon without being a felon. Interesting. Okay, so now your your ex-wife is reaching out to what would be considered your absolute opposite on the planet, right? Yes. Yes. A, a black man <laughs> whose sole mission is to stop racism. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Time we were we were going through death threats. We were our house was getting vandalized, our car was getting vandalized, um the kids were getting harassed. Things were just really terrible. So she reached out to him just so she had somebody to talk to about this stuff. And she kind of okey-doked me, like I said, and put me on the phone with them. Um, our first conversation lasted about four hours, and we talked about punk rock music. We, we, we found a common, some common ground, and that's what we both latched on to. Because, I mean, we knew who each other were. We just, yeah. you know, we, we, it was being, we were both very guarded. And... Uh, I mean, as the years went on, yeah, hell, I just talked to him yesterday, as a matter of fact. He's still one of my really, really good friends, one of my best friends. Um, but he uh, he kind of pointed me in the direction of talking to the Southern Poverty Law Center. A, and, a wonderful um, group, yeah. They are. They, they, they're absolutely wonderful. Well, I ended up calling them and had a conversation with Mark Potok, and uh, – his conversation was like, "Well, hey, let's let's get your article out there. Let's let's get you out there." I'm like, "Whoa, dude! I, you know, if I if I do this, I have to be anonymous first and foremost. Otherwise, there will be bullet holes being ripped through my door." Wait, like, what oh, article? No, no. Oh, so you said you wanted to write an article about it? I missed that part. I, I was talking about. Uh, well, when I talked to Mark, he brought it up to write an article okay, about got it. my path, spill secrets of the group. Um, I didn't like how he was going about it because I wanted. I mean, if I was going to do something like that, there had to be some. Uh, I had to be anonymous and I, I really didn't like the way the conversation was going. So I bid him a, you know, I bid him a good day and hung up five minutes later. Uh, one of their investigators, Lori Wood gave me a call back and she's like, listen, forget what Mark says. I just want to meet up with you and your family. Me and my, uh, my partner, Joe, we're, we'll come out to you. Where are you at? I said, okay, yeah, come on out for the weekend. And they came out and, um, Immediately, of course, we started talking about the facial tattoos. We went out for a weekend, stayed at a hotel, and they paid for it. It was awesome. It was like a water park hotel in uh, Wisconsin. So the kids got to play while we talked and everything, and it was really cool. And uh, Joe Roy, he was their head of security. He he actually was looking at my facial tattoos, and he's like, well, what are you planning on doing about those? <laughs> yeah. So I told my plan about the dermal acid, and he was like, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you do anything like that, he's like, let me – let me talk to my people and get back to you. Just give me a week. I said, okay, I can give you seven days. That's fine. And five days later, he calls me up and tells me that he found an anonymous donor to pay for the tattoo removal. I said, okay, what do I need to do? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I think it, it's important to note, too. I mean, I've had a tattoo removed. It's $1,000 for one dinky little tattoo, you know. So we're talking 
thousands of dollars were donated for you to. From what I understand, I I, I don't know a hundred percent, but from what I understand, everything, um, the whole procedure, everything, it took about two and a half years, cost around thirty plus thousand dollars. Wow. I don't know exactly how much. And some um, anonymous person just said, "Yeah, I'll I'll cover that." Wow. Yeah, an anonymous donor. That's took incredible. Care of it. And, See, that's uh, humanity I mean, at work, as far as I'm concerned. It really is. I mean, it was a guardian angel. It was a miracle, literally. I, yeah. I, I literally won the lottery then. Yeah. You know, it was, it was, I was, I was, I, I was in shock for like a good month. I didn't yeah. think it was real. You know, I expected the carpet to be yanked out from under me at any given moment. You know, it's, but um, their their only stipulation was I had to make a documentary, which I did, which is called Erasing Hate, and. Uh, we ended up packing up their house in northern uh, Michigan and moving down to Tennessee. And uh, that's where my in-laws were at. My ex-wife's dad lives down there in Lebanon, so okay. that's where we moved. Right. And, and I uh, thought you lived here when I reached out to you. I, I, yeah. I, I kept the breadcrumb stopping there for yeah for reasons. <laughs> you know, so if anyone tries to yeah. hunt me down or hunt down my kid, yeah, yeah. you're, you're going to be led in Tennessee. It's pretty well where it stops. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we moved down to Lebanon, and uh, Doctor Shack at Vanderbilt University, he was he he's the head plastic surgeon there. He's the only one that really did a lot of the tattoo removals. I went and did a consultation with him, and he's like, "Oh, I'm doing this." I'm <laughs> he sure you've really never excited. seen anything like it. I mean, he's done like like what you've you know a small tattoo like what you had removed. Um, you know, he's done plenty of those. You know, like little tattoos, never somebody's whole face and neck and hands. I mean, that's that was unheard of at the time. Nobody's really gotten that many tattoos taken off at that time. I mean, it's a lot more common now. There are a lot of more people getting getting their stuff taken yeah. off their face. And I liked it. But, I, when I had, as I, during the process, it feels like someone's dropping burning oil on you. So I can only imagine enduring the extent of the removal. I mean, not to get all biblical, but talk about penance, huh? Oh, I, I I felt it was a penance, and to be completely honest, I kind of sissied out after I did two sessions on my face oh. without anything. Just oh, to, so uh, painful! Got my whole face done once, and then they I, I told them they needed to put me under. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. At that time, instead of doing just like sections, they did everything. They put me under, zap everything, and then I would come out of it like a burn victim, basically. Yeah. And then two weeks later, go back. And do it again, all in front of the cameras. I don't know if you saw my documentary. I didn't. Or not. I didn't. I'll have to watch it now. I didn't. I didn't. It's on Netflix. Know. Yeah. Okay. I'll have to watch it. Yeah. Hey, check it out. It's on Netflix, and I, I put links on on my uh, website with all all sorts of stuff. So I'll put a link to to that, or you know, let people know they can watch that. Oh, fantastic! Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So you're enduring incredible pain, and you're getting these tattoos removed, and. Uh, so now what? Now where are you in the whole scheme of things? Well, I mean, I'm at getting, that time, I'm, not now, this moment, right. but now in that time frame. At that time, I was doing um, a lot of consulting work for various um, uh, law enforcement agencies, um, government agencies, and that was helping pay the bills and whatnot while I went through all these procedures. Yeah. Because I couldn't go out in the sun. I couldn't. I couldn't really do anything. My face was swollen out. I looked like a bad boxer. I mean, it was... It was rough. Yeah. So I, I was doing a lot of consulting, um, you know, pointing out, just helping out different law enforcement agencies with, with questions, um, you know, pointing out who were really bad guys, 
who to look out for. Um, Which has got to be incredibly dangerous if you already had a target on you. I imagine that tenfolded it, hundredfolded it, a thousandfold. Oh, it did. It did. But it, at the time, uh, we lived out in the sticks, Lebanon, Tennessee. You had to be an army ranger to find our house. I mean, satellites didn't even go over it. We were out in the sticks. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I mean, I felt I felt safe enough to where we could do that. Yeah. So we were doing this consulting stuff to just keep getting just to pay the bills, all the while shooting this documentary. And um, two days before the documentary aired, we actually saved up enough money to get a house in, in uh, southern New Mexico. And uh, the night the documentary aired on MSNBC, the next day I was loading a U-Haul and we moved out of Tennessee. Wow. After that, I would, did a lot of uh, speaking engagements. and. Uh, How did you keep safe? That, if, you're, if you're out there giving, I mean, your face is clearly obvious. You know, you look like how you look. How do you stay safe? Even now, how do you stay safe? By watching my six, first and foremost. Um, <laughs> watching, you know, if, it's hard to ambush somebody if they're expecting an ambush. Yeah. I mean, that's Sun Tzu's art of war. Um Know your enemy, cultivate that enemy, destroy the enemy. Again, so, um, yeah, art of war. But um, <laughs> So you say but, that you have PTSD, but you've never fought a war, and I would argue that, in fact, you have, because <laughs> you're in one, technically. No, never fought, a, never fought a war for this country. How about that? Right. Well, well no, that's not true, because if you are you know, giving information to try and help law enforcement stop these movements, then you are serving the country. So I beg to differ. Thank you. I, I, you know, I don't think I am, but I appreciate that. That's that's awfully cool. Well, <laughs> Never really looked I at it. it. Way. <laughs> I see it that way. And you yeah, were, I mean, you were, you were. I read on the little thing about you that you were uh, nicknamed the Enforcer, which probably means that you did some really bad things. Well, there, there, there's some misconstruity there. Um, I was an Enforcer. Um, what an enforcer is, is somebody who cleans up messes, usually within the club or other skinheads, things of that nature. Um, I was an enforcer. My nickname was Babs, B-A-B-S. Babs. Babs, yes. Terrible nickname. And I worked really hard to make that strike fear into the hearts of people, trust me. I, I, I put in some overtime on that one. But, Were you really, really yeah, into no. Barbara Streisand? How did you get that one? <laughs> Uh, I, I had a I always had a really bad habit of babbling when I'm drunk. Oh, so bab short for that. Okay, yeah, so now you're true. you're you were talking about how you were going around and you were giving uh, lectures and stuff. And were you at this point going, okay, how can I talk to people like who I was? Were you trying to get to kids or and say, hey, maybe there's some options? Or was that not your path? What, what was your path? Well, I, I have I have done a number of. Um, like high school talks and stuff, usually through Skype and things like that across the country and whatnot. Um, addressing kids, that's really one of the most important things about the whole white supremacy things because they're, no, they're the number one target. Yeah. You know, you, you, I mean, any recruiter will tell you they just look – they'll drive by a high school during break and just look for that one kid sitting off by himself dressed in all black with no friends, and that's who they're going to get. And guaranteed that kid's going to come on board because he obviously he's in school, but if he doesn't have anyone around him, he's alone. Yeah. You know, maybe he's in, that's who they're going to target. Yeah. So talking to kids is definitely 
a huge, huge factor. And the biggest thing that I found doing doing these talks with the kids, with high school students and whatnot, is actually not talking at them, but listening more than anything. And that's really all a lot of people need is just somebody to listen to them, to, to, to validate who they are as a person, to validate that, yes, they're, they have problems and they don't need to go this route to solve these problems. It's just going to make even more problems later on. And having that documentary that has given me a, an opportunity to be able to talk more to you know high school kids and I, I've done a lot of college talks too. This, those are those are fun because it's just it's more food for thought. But college kids have already made their decisions; they're already proceeding in life. Whereas high schoolers, heck, they they barely know what they're going to wear Friday, much less what they're going to do five years from now. You I know? disagree <laughs> with you. I feel like you know around twenty twenty one twenty two, you're really discovering who you are as a person and what you believe in and your ideologies and, and all that stuff. So I think that's also a, a good time, you know? It, it can be. Um, generally, 20, 21-year-olds already know everything. So <laughs> you know, I, when I was 21, I did, obviously. Yeah. And then I, when I was 25, I realized I didn't know shit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. That's generally how it works, I think. Um, Do you um, think I mean, you... – co- Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, a lot of the college talks were – were a lot more engaging because like some of the, the Q and A's afterward were very thought provoking. Yeah. Got me looking at different angles of things, which I always really appreciated. I mean, the future of the country is incredibly intelligent. And I mean, I don't agree with everything in the world, but there, there's a massive amount of intelligence in the future of our country, which thank God for that at least. Um, but I mean, they really get you thinking in different aspects, which I always appreciated. I've always enjoyed that. So do you think that the you that is now, if the you that is now had come across the you that was, you know, the 14-year-old boy, would you have listened to you, do you think? Do you think Questions. you would have changed your, your mind about your trajectory? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if I wouldn't have gone that route, I'd probably be some nerdy professor somewhere. I mean, honestly, I was always a bookworm and I was always a nerd. Yeah. So. I mean, that's I, that's what I would be doing if I wouldn't have gone that route. I mean, my lot in life just became very violent, and I, I embraced it. Um, if I could have talked to me, I mean, if I could meet the 14-year-old me now, I'm pretty sure he would go a different route. Did you, I would hope. Did you believe in something bigger than yourself when you were a teenager, like a God, like God or, you know, Jesus or anything? Did you have any kind um, of... I, I mean, I was raised Christian. Um, it was really kind of pounded down my throat. So with the whole <laughs> the whole hormonal rebellious, uh, screw all you people, I'm going to do what I want, that was kind of what happened. I, I turned my back on religion. Um, I started you know, studying Satanism, and then I started studying uh, Druidism and uh, Norse uh, Odinism. Um, yeah, I mean, just more European uh, mythologies more than anything. Sure. And uh, that's mm-hmm. – and. I ended up kind of going, I was an Odinist for years and years and years, so I kind of went with that. I'm glad you didn't pluck out an eyeball or anything. To... <laughs> you know, <laughs> Tyr was always my patron god, so I would have had to have lopped off my right hand, but I kind of need that, yeah. so <laughs> I am right-handed. The gods are quirky, all the... They were. The they, Norse they, gods, they, yeah. the, Nor- the Norse gods especially, they're certainly badasses, very quirky in their personalities. Yeah, yeah, they all had very, 
very distinguished personalities in the mythology. It's it's actually quite fascinating. I still read up on it. Oh, stuff. yeah. No, I love reading about stuff like that. It's absolutely. So I still love listening. You, so. you were going to be, I'm going to go back a little ways. You were about to have a child and you thought, I don't want to, to raise up a kid. Did you think, I don't want to raise up a kid in this organization of hate? Or did you think, I don't want to raise up a kid in a world that has hate in it? Like, what was your kind of defining? It was, on it, to be completely honest, it was mostly the organizational aspect. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm a realist in knowing that I can't solve all the hate in the world. Sure. I mean, I, I might be able to change the minds of a few, which is fine. If I can leave the world in a better place than how I found it, even better. I can go to my grave happy. But erasing hatred from the world is, I mean, you talk about, that. that's a lot of pressure. That's, that's a lot of work. That <laughs> is a lot of work. <laughs> yes. And, um, mm-hmm. I mean, if I could do that for my kid, absolutely I would. I, I would in a heartbeat. But raising him around hate, that would be predetermining a destiny for him that, is in my place to predetermine. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, his choices are, are going to have to be his choices. It was my job to make sure that he has the tools to recognize right from wrong and to be able to deal with life. Yeah. Per se. And if I would have raised him around that, that would have predetermined him for bad things that I don't want to see my son cry. I don't want to see him bleed. I, I don't want to see anything that I had to go through that I don't want anything like that to ever happen to him yeah i mean as a father i mean sure it's just or as a human being <laughs> yeah as a human being you don't want to i mean humans from what i found after being a skinhead i mean we are compassionate creatures we really are it actually you have to force yourself to to be incredibly violent you have to force yourself to be angry i mean these are not things that are that are a constant. These are not things that we are ingrained with genetically. These are things that we have to force ourselves to, to embrace. Right. I, I feel you know? that you do need to be taught to hate something. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it comes naturally other than maybe the taste of a certain food or something or, you know, but, or some, a smell, but, but as far as human, other human beings go, I, I do think that that's something that has to be indoctrinated into you. And anger is a weird thing, you know. Again, emotions are all... Unless you have a mental disorder. There's always caveats, you know. But I think, you know, you choose every day to behave a certain way. And whether or not to hold on to it. I think about that sometimes when I'm driving, for example. And I'm not road ragey. But every once in a while, somebody will do something. And I'll be like, really, big jerk? You know, I'll get real pissed off. And then I kind of laugh at myself. And think, that was a pretty intense... Like, who cares if someone cuts you off in traffic? At the end of the day, it's a one second. Who cares? But I'm only human, and I get caught up in that. But then it's a choice. Do I let that moment define who I am the rest of the day? Or do I just go, that was silly, you know? And let it go and laugh at myself. Those are my choices. Absolutely. And, yeah, that's very astute. I mean, I, I find myself road raging still. I'm... I'm horrible about it. I really am. I am very bad about it. <laughs> I I could win an award if they gave out awards for that stuff. I, I it is a really funny do. thing, though, road rage, isn't it? Because it's the like somebody cuts in front of you. I think about that too. Like when you're trying to get into someone's lane and they speed up, and and I always think, really, that's your reaction instead of like, oh, go ahead. And I had to laugh on Thanksgiving. I was in Seattle visiting my family, and. Uh, 
you know, I was on Facebook the morning of Thanksgiving and everyone's like, oh, I'll give thanks and everybody's happy and like prairie and stuff like that and and this and the other thing and then I'm I'm heading to my parents from where I was staying and I had to go across the bridges and on the freeway and stuff and people were being so rude. Like just not wanting to let anyone in. It was just me, 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 me behind the wheel and I I was in a great mood, so I just I just didn't care, but I had to laugh thinking, I wonder how many of these people posted you know, love each other, be thankful, and now they're being just jerks on the on the freeway. It just made me laugh. Well, you know, most of them did. That's and that's, of course yeah, they did. There's the irony. <laughs> Let's all show human compassion. Fuck you. Yeah, you know? humans are just so weird. <laughs> we are. We, we are definitely a a, a strange, bunch of strange creatures. <laughs> So now that you're on this new, you know, really a whole other chapter, you might as well, and I say this again all the time when I have these kind of conversations with people, not these particular conversations, but when I talk to people and they say things like, you know, oh, I can't believe that extremists exist, or I can't believe that neo-Nazis exist, or, you know, KKK, or whatever it is, you know, rapists exist, or, you know, blah, or child molesters exist, or whatever the thing is. And I always think... If I, me, Susan, had been raised up, my father had molested me, for example. My father's awesome. He never laid a hand on me, never touched me, nothing. He's a great man. Had I been in a family where my father molested me, I could have become a child molester quite easily. It's just the way that's how it works. You know, if I grew up with with a mom who hated all black people, you know, I could have grown up to hate all black people. I mean, it's just, it's so circumstantial. It's not like you look at a baby in a crib and be like, oh, that person's a child molester. And that one's exactly. going to hate Jews. And that one's going to, you know, it's not like some specter is going through the nursery touching the tops of their heads and deciding. It's really right. their, their environmental... Their environment. And I'm not saying that all people who are molested grow up to be child molesters. They don't. The cycles do stop. That's not what I'm saying. Right. But but you get what I'm, you know. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah, it's our, our destinies aren't predetermined. I mean, that's that's a whole sociological argument, you know, nurture versus nature. Um, you know, it's, and a lot of people, like in white supremacy, are born into it. They are raised absolutely. around it. And sure. They embrace it. Yeah. And then there's people like me who... The circumstances were just prevalent to where I was able to embrace it, and I did. Yeah. You know, it's, I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't raised racist. I, I learned how to hate. Yeah. And I learned how to do that in high school, you know? Yeah. So. And that, the Grand Dragon guy, Richard, that I talked to, you know, he, I, as I was sitting there talking with him, I thought, you know, take away the racist part of him and the hating of the Jewish part of him and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's, you know, there were moments where we were like laughing at the same thing at a joke or whatever, or having camaraderie because he's a human being and I'm a human being, you know, and at the bottom line and all I like that throughout the conversation, I kept thinking like, if this guy was my mailman raised by, you know, sweet Betty Crocker, loved everyone mama Instead of the fact that he comes from a long line of people in the KKK, he would be a totally different person and we'd be like having lunch maybe or something. You know what I mean? It's just so weird to wrap your brain around that stuff. That we're all human beings, like you say, just trying to freaking live our lives. And the choices we make, sometimes made for us, 
dictates Sometimes. so much. And the fact that you at some point went, I, I find that miraculous and wonderful that at some point you went, this is not who I am. This is not what I believe and got yourself out of it. I mean, the, first of all, how brave that is. I don't, I don't know if you get told that. I'm, I'm sure you do. If you don't, you should be. It's incredibly brave. People, people, a lot of people have told me how how brave it was and this and that. And the thing was, I never felt brave doing it. I mean, I was always scared, um, so I never once felt brave. Um, I mean, it just it was it was the difference between right and wrong. And I know the differences between right and wrong. And I was living wrong. Yeah. I was being wrong, and I had to I had to recognize it and and change it. I mean, Do you, you don't ever- drive around. With- I'm sorry. I'm uh, sorry. Don't drive around on a car with a flat tire. You get out and you change it. Yeah. If something's broken, you fix it. The problem was my whole everything that I believed was broken. Everything that I thought was right was not. Right. So I had to I had to change it. And I never felt brave. I mean, I get told that I was brave, and I, I appreciate that from you. I really, really do. But I've I mean, I don't think anybody who's ever been put in a brave situation where they had to, had to embrace it, felt brave during the situation. So, and if they did, they're egotistical, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, everybody's got their own dance <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. Do, Absolutely. do you ever have moments where you're old, like when you're dreaming, when you have dreams or, you know, when you're asleep, when you dream, do you, or, or do you still ever have moments that the old voice creeps in or is it completely eradicated? Um, no, that's 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 a demon I wrestle with constantly. Um, getting out of that lifestyle, it's not just changing a philosophical aspect or a political aspect. It's not just changing that. It's changing everything about your life on how you how you deal with people, how you handle situations, how how you approach situations. Um, like for instance, you know, fifteen years ago, if somebody would cut me off in traffic, I'd run them off the road and get out with a ball bat and. And beat them. That would have been what I would do. Anymore, if somebody pisses me off, I have to, you know, breathe and and yeah, that that old aspect of me. It's it's a lot easier to hit people upside the head with a beer bottle and just be left alone than it is to actually engage people and engage people health it healthy. Ah, I know what you're saying. Bad. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. It's on the tip of yeah. my tongue. Um, it's. It's a change on everything. Well, it's and not, to engage like I said, oneself, I think that's the biggest thing. To look at oneself. That is that is mankind's biggest hurdle. Is it is. To see oneself and to see oneself in others. To really, really see the mirror. That is like, I look at you and I see me. Because I could have been you in a different upbringing. You know what I mean? Like, to actually see each other and say... You are you are me. I am you. We're the exact same person. We've just taken other doorways. And I know there'd be people that argue me for that, but I I really truly believe that that we have to see ourselves truly in order to see anyone else. Because oh, that's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, like I said, if if just a certain couple little things didn't happen the way they did, I would be like I said, a professor or something. I would I would be living a much different life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It would. A completely different life, and yeah, like like you said, if something would have happened to you, you very well could have gone that route. Also, I mean, it's and anybody can fall into it. It doesn't matter, 
you know, I, I can just speak from the fact that I was a neo-Nazi. I mean, even if you're black and, you know, you can fall into, you know, a, a hate group with that or a oh, gang sure. or, or yeah. anything of that. It's, it's, it is exactly like you said, it's, we are, we are all the same. And in a lot of aspects, it's just different, different little doorways we've all passed through. Do you think it's possible? Um, I mean, do you think, first of all, what do you think your legacy is on the planet at this point? And do you think that we are heading as a human populace can we get to a place where this is so ideal you know idealistic but do you think it's possible to get to a place where there are if not no groups just very little groups like this because i mean i think right now in america especially and in europe these sort of groups are on the rise it's getting a little nutty out there they are they're on the rise even even in australia believe it or not um yeah, and the Australians go along with everybody, for God's sakes. <laughs> they just want to drink do beer I, and travel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, do I think, well, I think we could, but there's a lot, it, it's going to put in, a, we're, everybody's going to have to put in work for it. It's not something that can just be taken care of. I mean, these groups didn't sprout up overnight. You know, this isn't a phenomenon. This is something that has been there under the rock for decades yeah you know um in the case of the clan a couple centuries you know it's always been back when they were clan of the cave bear in in caveman times no i'm kidding go on (laughs) 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 but um boom that was terrible season oh so bad anyway i applaud you i'm so (laughs) proud right now (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i mean they are they've been around forever and they're starting I don't know if it's social media, you know, now we live in this digital instantaneous age and people are so angry, you know, and there's a lot of us. There's just so many people. Yeah. I mean, is it just going to, is it going to get worse? And what do you think? Do you? Oh, I mean, if we, I mean, if we look at the history of the human race, things always tend to get worse before they get better. Yeah. And I think we got the tip of the iceberg right now. I, I think it's going to get pretty bad before it even begins to get better. And I, again, it's it's not something that's going to be eradicated overnight. I mean, we're we're not going to live in a you know a, a utopian society by tomorrow. It's not going to happen. We all have to put in work, every one of us. Sure. But otherwise, it won't happen. And I don't. I I can see it happening. I just don't know if it'll happen in our in our lifetime or yeah. in my lifetime. Say. Yeah. Um. I would like to see it happen, but again, I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime. Again, I'm already middle-aged, so I'm halfway there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as far as my legacy goes, I mean, I really don't know. Um, the thing I would like to leave, and I said it earlier, is basically if I can just leave the world a little bit better than how I found it, I'll, I can go to the great happy at that point. I can go content. Um I mean, I just, I've done really, really bad for a very long time and I have a lot to pay back (laughs) and it's, it's going to take a while. And I don't, I mean, that's between me and me and the guy upstairs. I mean, that's, I don't, I don't know what kind of legacy I'm going to leave other than, you know, I got infamous for making bad decisions. (laughs) That's pretty well what it boils down to, but, um, if I can just help, that's what I want to do. Yeah. 
Do you believe in forgiveness? I do. I do believe in forgiveness. Um, I've, I forgive people all the time. Um, I, my issue with that is I have a very hard time forgiving myself. Yeah. That's where I was kind of going with that. Yeah. I'd time with that. Do you have moments where you do? And I mean, does it, does it eke in here and there the light? Oh, it all, it's, I don't know if it'll ever happen. Honestly. Um, I mean, to be completely honest, I don't know if I'll ever be able to forgive myself, but again, that's my cross to bear. Um, I, you know, if, as long as, you know, Lord's forgiven me, which it says he did. So I'm yeah. pretty sure he did. And, you know, society can forgive me. Hell yeah. But as far as my forgiveness goes, I, I don't know if I'll ever be able to or not, to be completely honest. Yeah. Well, sometimes I think the difference between heaven and hell is hell is, you know, in us. It is. <laughs> yeah. I agree. You haven't told me the things you have done in your past. I imagine they were probably pretty gnarly. And for me, I think you're right that at the end of the day, the only one that matters is the one who's going to look at you and say, I love you with amazing grace. And so if you can look at yourself that way here and there, try. <laughs> I do try. I promise that. <laughs> Good. I do try. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me it's on the show. It's been great. I've loved it. This has been awesome. It really has. Yeah. It's been uh, a very gracious hostess. Check back and let me know some of the fun things you're doing out in the world and how you're changing oh, absolutely. it. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.